Thank you, Rachel. And uh, just for clarity's sake, that was going on right inside the sanctuary for those who were in that space over there. And so what a joy it is to be able to worship together outdoors as well as indoor, as well as online. So welcome to Living Hope. Um, you know, I'm so delighted today to introduce our guest speaker, Pastor Scott Saul. Scott, Pastor Scott is the lead pastor at Christ, Central, uh, no, Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And he is also uh, an avid blogger and an author of uh, many books. For us pastors in particular, he's kind of a big deal. He's kind of like a little celebrity for us. And I've read his materials, and I was so delighted and grateful that he agreed uh, to come and speak at the Sola um, Filming Conference as well as uh, to Living Hope. And I, we were just talking today, and he said he's been out to California several times uh, Two other times, I believe, within these last few months, uh, he said uh, he was out here to speak at Saddleback a few months ago, and then Mariners about a month ago, and Living Hope uh, today. And so, you know, Saddleback and Mariners were just warm-up um, times <laughs> in preparation for the finale, which is Living Hope. So I'm so grateful that they, yeah, they got you prepared for us. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten to know Pastor Scott Souls, and I have to just tell you that you know, as a pastor, sometimes we uh, meet these like big-time, well-known uh, leaders, and we're, we kind of, we're kind of awestruck by them. And then there are times when we meet them, and we realize, hey, they're just—they're people. They're genuine. They're warm, and they uh, just care. Um, and so I, I want to say that Pastor Scott Sauls is like that. And um, I, I'm just going to say that we're going to become friends, whether you like it or not. <laughs> I have it on record. Um, I was so delighted to hear his message this morning. I was so moved and struck, and I want you to listen with not only your, your ears, but with your hearts and your mind. Pastor Scott, would you come and bless our church today? Well, there are two sins that just happened. Uh, not sure you're aware. One was all the exaggeration that just happened, and the other was how much I enjoyed it. So um, it's so good to be with you all, uh, so humbled and honored to have been invited by uh, Pastor Steve, who is a wonderful pastor, man of God, a uh, man who makes great sacrifices uh, uh, to lead and to love and serve this com congregation, as well as uh, the Sola Network uh, that he's uh, an important part of as well, which I got the privilege to, um, uh, to join yesterday uh, here as well at Living Hope. And so I'm just grateful to be with you. And I don't know how to follow the, the kids' presentation of Isaiah because it was so good. And um, just don't know how to, I, I think I can compete with the small hedgehog, but I, don't, I know I can't compete with a big hedgehog. So we'll give it a shot though. And uh, our, our text today is going to be from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And uh, I'll read from there now. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, <clears throat> having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with, to with uh, tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. So the last year or so has um, been filled with a lot of trauma. I think trauma is the right word to describe what COVID-19 and everything that has flown, uh, flowed from COVID-19 uh, has, has created trauma. And what's happening in the passage in front of us right now is also one man's reaction to an experience of trauma. And the trauma was political, uh, it was social, it was national. It was the year that King Uzziah died. And King Uzziah represented everyone's favorite king. It, it, he was like Mr. Rogers. It was almost impossible not to like him. He'd brought prosperity, peace, joy, flourishing to the nation of Israel, and now he has died. And what is happening is that the nation of Assyria is also on the attack. So, so not only have they lost a beloved leader, they're about to be invaded and taken captive and, and made into exiles and slaves. It's almost like the American Great Depression, except with a whole lot of violence and death added to it. What's so, what's so surprising, though, about this passage is that the thing that Isaiah is shaken by the most is not the political situation for the people of Israel. It actually has nothing to do with world events, as important as world events might be. The source of Isaiah's restlessness and trauma here consists of the trauma of meeting God. But then from this comes the rebuilding power of grace where Isaiah receives a relief like he's never known before. And then finally we see a picture of the trauma of what it might mean to be God. So let's start with the trauma of meeting God. If you've ever watched the, uh, the Christmas special, Charlie Brown Christmas, it's a, it's a cartoon. Uh, there's this scene where Linus, one of the characters, reads the Christmas story out of Luke chapter 2. And he reads from the King James so innocently as a child where it reads, the angel of the Lord came upon the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. They were so afraid that they were sore. Uh, they were so shaken that it, that it hurt. And then if we continue to read the 
account of the announcement of Christ's first coming, we see that Mary and Zechariah and others are also shaken. They have a similar reaction that the shepherds did. They were sore afraid also. And so what's happening here with Isaiah is that that this whole political situation over here where, where the nation of Israel is losing so much as a people, and it will never be recovered again in their lifetimes. But what's consuming Isaiah is something different. He doesn't say, woe is to me because I've lost my king. He doesn't say, woe is me because life is going to be extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult for myself and for my people from this point forward. Even though those things are important matters, God cares about every little bit of our suffering. But what he says is, woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The word smoke is used here to describe the appearance of the Lord in the temple. It it gives us memory, perhaps, for those of us who are Bible readers and are familiar with the books of Moses, where, where the presence of God would appear in the daytime in the form of a pillar of cloud or in the form of smoke, and then fire by night a consuming fire. It says that the foundations of the temple are shaking. It it would be almost like a a California earthquake that happens right in the middle of a service like this, and the ground beneath us starts shaking, and we wonder if the roof's maybe going to collapse in on us, or if if, uh, the joists are going to snap, or if something's going to happen. We feel vulnerable. And he feels vulnerable because of the presence of God. It's not the presence of a, uh, an earthquake as much as it is the presence of God himself that's shaking everything in the foundations. And then even the angels are covering their face. These are morally perfect creatures. And yet these morally perfect creatures do what our children do when we catch them. When we catch them with their hand in the cookie jar, when they're not supposed to be putting their hands in the cookie jar, when we, when we catch our children telling a lie, what do they often do? They will cover their faces. The angels are doing the same thing. They're covering their faces as if they've been found out as being so significantly lesser than this great hedgehog called Yahweh, called the Creator, who has made himself known in this ominous way. And the word holy, which is one of the attributes of God, this is the only attribute that the Bible repeats consecutively three times for emphasis, which was emphasized in the kids' video. Holy, holy, holy. It's like bold print. It's like exclamation points. It's like all caps. He is holy. This is who he is. He's love, and he's holy. Those two go together. They don't cancel each other out. The fact that he is superlative means he's different. It means he's other, and it means he's superlative. Another thing that's remarkable about this situation with Isaiah is that the thing he talks about is his lips. His profession is that of a teacher of the Word of God. He is an experienced, well-educated, skilled prophet. We, we read the 60-whatever the chapters of his book, 
And we see how skilled he is with words and, and making beauty out of words. And yet his lips become a source of shame for him. Woe is me, my lips are unclean. He takes the strongest thing about him, the thing that gives him his credentials, the, 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 the thing that, that he uses to justify his own existence. I'm a gifted, skilled speaker, and yet my lips now feel unclean, even my lips, having been in the presence of God. The lips of a prophet are what a prophet would put on the top line of his resume. In the same way that a sprinter might boast in, in her legs, an Olympic sprinter, or, in, or a surgeon might boast in, in the skill of, of what he can do with his fingers, or a scholar might boast in, in, in how sharp her mind is. Can you imagine somebody applying for a, a professor's job or, or applying for tenure at University of Southern California, and the top line of her resume says that I have an unclean mind. I have a substandard mind. I don't think well. That's what, that's what it's like for Isaiah to say he has unclean lips. He's looking at the strongest part of him, and he's saying it's not sufficient. It's not enough. I am not enough to bear the presence of a God like this. So it's not just the foundation of the temple that gets shaken. It's also everything that we turn into the foundation of our lives. And that usually means the things that we're good at, the things that make us look good in front of other people, the things that, that make us look superior in comparison to other people. And yet now he's not being compared to other people. He's, he, he's now faced with a comparison between him and God. And it's not even close. The gap is so wide. It, it, it's like asking, you know, a, a, a a sprinter, an Olympic sprinter or a long jumper to jump over the Grand Canyon. Oh, he's going to jump further than I'm going to jump, but he's not even going to get to, you know, a tenth of the way there before he drops to his own peril. That's what it's like for a human being to try to reach the holiness of God. It's unreachable on our own. And so Isaiah would later say in his prophecy, our very best works by themselves, without the blessing of God on them, the very best things about us are as filthy rags. Even the best things about us are a source of shame. It's as if he's saying. This is one of the signs that, that, that we have encountered God at some point in our lives. And thankfully, God spares most of us of having this kind of experience every day. But at some point in the, in the journey of knowing God, there is a reckoning where we recognize that, that on our own, we are not enough. We do not measure up. The very best things about us don't even come close to what is required for a person to dwell peacefully in the presence of God. It's the tension of being human. Job, whom God says is the most righteous person in the land. God says, have you considered my servant Job? He fears God and he shuns evil. And yet when Job's picture of God, when, when he gets a glimpse of God, 
Job's impulse is to say, my eyes have seen the Lord and I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. The same thing happens with the apostle Peter when, when he hears Jesus. All Jesus is doing is teaching. And after hearing Jesus teach, Peter looks at, at the Lord and he says, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. I, I can't be in your presence. You are up here. I'm down here. You're the big hedgehog. I'm, I'm not even the mid-sized hedgehog. I'm the tiny hedgehog. I'm not even a hedgehog. I don't even belong with the likes. My name shouldn't even be mentioned in the same sentence as your name is, Lord. It's traumatic. You know, so if we're looking for a religion to build our self-esteem, Christianity is not it. Oh, believe me, Christianity will give us an esteem that is greater than any esteem that we would ever imagine, but it's an esteem that comes from Christ. It's an esteem that comes from what he has done on our behalf, that he has made us beautiful and blameless and righteous and holy and good and pure in the sight of God by living as our substitute, by stepping in our place, by taking all of the hits that we deserve so that we get the credit for all the good that we don't have. So there's a great esteem that comes from being a Christian, but it's not self-esteem. It's the esteem that comes from our Creator. The Apostle Paul says in Romans that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. That word power is from the Greek word dynamis, which we get our word dynamite from. The gospel is like dynamite. It explodes in the heart. It explodes in the soul. But what does dynamite do? It destroys every lesser foundation so that those lesser foundations, after they've been decimated, can be swept out of the way and, 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 and a renewed foundation that cannot be decimated be rebuilt. You know, Isaiah's greatest vulnerability before he sees the Lord is his relative lack of vulnerability. That's what makes him most vulnerable. And yet this vision of the Lord brings him to the point where he realizes, I cannot lean on my pedigree anymore. I can't lean on my gift package. I can't lean on my 4.0 or my 36 on the ACT. I can't lean on those things anymore. But what I can lean on is the rebuilding power of grace. Isaiah becomes shy about himself and boastful about God. And that's what a powerful prophet is. The powerful prophet is the prophet that points away from himself or herself to a great God, shy about self, boastful about God. And so then we see the rebuilding power of grace here. As Isaiah the prophet prepares himself to die, an angel of the Lord appears to him with a blazing coal. Just imagine a a red-hot coal coming at your lips, coming straight at your face. What are we going to do? We're going to try to get up. We can feel the heat coming. We can see it. It's terrifying. And then it touches his lips, and it doesn't burn. It doesn't scar him. It doesn't decimate. It doesn't cremate. Instead, it heals his lips. It purifies his lips in the same way that fire purifies gold. It it melts it. 
And then the dross and the dirt and the bacteria and the contaminants are, 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 are melted out. And, 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 when it, and then it can re, be reshaped and reformed while it is still in the heat into something more pure and more beautiful, more carrots, so to speak, after the refining process. Isaiah is melted only to be purified, only to shine more than he has ever shown before. This phrase, too, here, the train of his robe, it says, the train of the Lord's robe fills the temple with glory. The Hebrew language here actually can be also translated the hem of his robe. If you're familiar with Luke's gospel, you may remember the other place in the Bible where a hem is mentioned, and it's the hem of Jesus' garment, where a woman crawls on the ground, having spent all of her money and many years seeking medical help and a solution to what seems like perhaps hemophilia or some other crippling, bleeding disease or disorder. And she's desperate, and she's on the ground, and she's crawling, and the crowds aren't noticing her because people stopped paying attention to her a long time ago. All she's got is her weakness, her shame, her feeling of failure, her feeling of not being able to fix things, her feeling of not being enough. That's all she's got. And the ability to crawl to the hem of Jesus' garment, and all she does is touch it, and she's instantly healed of her disease. Sometimes what we think will destroy us will end up being the thing that heals us. I can't wait to see what happens to the American church after the pandemic. I can't wait. It's weakened us. It's shrunk us. It's decimated us in some ways. But maybe this is just a refining process where God wants to make his church more pure, more beautiful, reshape her so that she will shine, so that her unclean lips that have made ugly things in the name of ugly partisan politics and ugly alignments and of Nietzschean power tactics as opposed to the humble way of Christ and, and the meek and lowly way of Christ and, and Paul, the apostle's way of glorying in weakness, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Maybe this whole season, at least part of it, has the church of Jesus Christ reemerging, revived, renewed, beautified to take her place again in her healing role in the world. I don't know. That's my prayer. We don't know what the Lord has for us. But one thing this does for Isaiah is it brings him to a place of honest confession where his defenses are down. This is one of my favorite things about the Bible. This is one of the things that led me to become a Christian. Every other religion that I've ever studied, the feeling is pressure. Measure up, and you might be accepted. 
Leave your life of sin, leave your life of imperfection, and you might not be condemned. But what compelled me and still compels me to this day is how Jesus reverses the order of those sentences. Specifically with the woman caught in the act of adultery. I do not condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. Reverse the order of those two sentences and we get some other religion. We get works-based religion, which is just pressure and failure and shame. But keep those sentences in the right order. He does not condemn you. Now, live differently. Now, respond with, here am I. Send me, shape me, mold me, refine me, purify me. Make me who I'm meant to be. If we could only understand how much he loves us, we, there's this freedom of honesty, this freedom of transparency that, that, that comes with knowing how loved we are. Isaiah is free to talk about his lips and to experience healing. Jonah is presented in the book of Jonah as this judgmental, entitled, bratty xenophobe, if not racist toward the Ninevites. And of course, he's hurt because the Ninevites have hurt his people, but God has called him to preach grace to them. And God has said to Jonah, there's there's mercy in my heart even for people like the Ninevites, and so I want you to go preach judgment to them so that they would be spared of judgment and receive my mercy instead. And Jonah runs the other way. We get this ugly picture of Jonah. And yet, who wrote the book of Jonah? Jonah, in the same way that David wrote the 51st Psalm, which is his confession after his moral failure with Bathsheba, and then the murder that he committed in order to try to cover it up. And now in the 51st Psalm, he's he's praying, God, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquities, cleanse me from my sin. And then he publishes it. For all of us to see. Paul talks about how he struggles with coveting in Romans chapter 7 or in 1, Corinthians, or in 1 Timothy 1. He, he, he talks about how he had been a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. The chief of sinners. And yet, he also says that it, my great sin it actually serves as an illustration of God's great mercy. Because where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Where sin is a, a hedgehog about this big, the grace of God is, is an enormous hedgehog. Who would want one like this when you can have one like this, right? Confess your sins, the half-brother of Jesus, James, wrote. And confess them to each other, and you will be healed. The hem of his garment is in the face of your brother and sister in Christ. Through the act of confession, you're reaching out for the hem of his garment, is confessing your sin to another brother or another sister under Christ, so that your brother or your sister can immediately respond by preaching the power of the gospel, the dynamite of the gospel to you. That its mending power is even greater than its decimating power. It only brings you down to the low and humble place in order to build you back up. Your guilt is removed, the angel of the Lord says. Your sin 
is atoned for, and Isaiah's immediate response is, send me, send me. Well, I haven't given you the job description yet. I don't care. Send me. I haven't told you about all the things you'll suffer. Send me. I haven't told you about how people will reject your message. You'll be all alone, and eventually they will saw you in two, and that's how your life will end, and you will never get to experience in your own lifetime the fruit of your labors. You'll be like the tortured artist who doesn't become successful until 400 years after he's dead. Send me. Send me. The grace of God is so amazing that it will make people brave. It will make people courageous. It will make people stop denying their neighbor, taking up their comforts and following their dreams, and instead they will deny themselves, which is the most beautiful thing. Take up their cross, follow Christ into the worship of God and into the love of neighbor, the radical love of neighbor. The only thing on earth that can get us unstuck from our paralysis, from our internal paralysis with things like guilt and shame, is the applied grace of God, is hearing and feeling even the voice that says to us in grace and truth, your guilt is removed, your sin is atoned for, you didn't do anything to achieve that. It's all been done for you. So rest and know that you're loved. So my friend Mike He was addicted to opioids, painkillers, and started chasing them down with whiskey. And I got a pastoral call in the middle of the night. It was about 2 a.m. when this call came. And I picked up the phone, and it was his wife. And she said, I'm taking the kids. It's not safe here. He's he's intoxicated. He's all drugged up, and he's got a gun. And so I'm taking the kids. I don't know what to do. And so I I picked up the phone at 2.05 in the morning and called another man from the church. And we, we both went over to Mike's house. And Mike, thankfully, was still alive. He answers the door. He's in a, a, you know, a drunken stupor. And I said, what's going on, Mike? How you doing? Well, he said, you want to know how I'm doing? I hate myself. And I said, why do you hate yourself, Mike? And he said, Because God hates me. Duh. Have you seen what I've done to this family? Have you seen the wreck I've made of my own life? I hate me because God hates me. Why don't you hate me? Reminded me of that line from the sheriff in Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men where the sheriff says, I always thought when I got older that God would sort of come into my life in some way. He didn't. And I don't blame him. If I was God, I would have the same opinion about me that he does. Isn't it so true of our hearts that we assume, with no basis in Scripture at all to assume this, we assume that God is disgusted with us most of the time. That's where my sense of guilt and shame and the negative verdicts that I carry around about myself in my head and rehearse and repeat over and over and over again comes from. It comes from unbelief that grace could actually be true. It comes from a belief that God is somehow disgusted with me. And so I was able to say to Mark something that I need to hear every single day or to Mike that, that, that night and for somehow Luke chapter 15 came to mind and the, the speech that the, the young prodigal son who had gone off and wasted his 
life and, and, and wasted family property and, and resources on prostitutes and wild living and drunken parties and so on. And he comes home assuming that his father must be disgusted with him. And, 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 and he brings a speech with him, and the speech is, make me a slave, because he knows in his heart of hearts that he'll never be a son again. And the father said, forget your speech. Throw your speech away. Here's the family robe of royalty. I put it on you. Here's, the, the, here's my signet ring to show you that you still belong. Here are shoes to put on your feet. And, 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 and we're going to have a party, and we're going to invite the whole neighborhood to celebrate your homecoming. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. I was able to look at Mike in that moment, in that very moment when he's saying, I hate myself, God hates me. And to say, and to, say to him, what you are saying could not be any more false than it is. And I, I, I opened Luke chapter 15 with him and I said to him, the most unclean things about you, Mike, the things about yourself that make you feel the most ashamed. These are the very things that stir Jesus' love and longing for you the most. Jesus called himself a physician. You guys, physicians are motivated by sick people. Good ones are motivated to run toward the disease, not away from it. Let me at it. Jesus is the same way, except he, he, there's never any intentional or accidental malpractice with Jesus. He always heals in just the right way and in just the right amount of time. You know, Isaiah doesn't retreat from the call of God on his life. Neither did Mike, thankfully. I was telling Pastor Steve between services, Mike, actually became one of the best church elders that I've ever served alongside of. It still gives me chills to tell that story. And what made him such a great elder in the church was that he had learned that the power of God comes through weakness, not through strength. And, and, and that the power of God is found on the ground, not at the mountaintop. And he knew this. And so he was always the person I would reach out to when when somebody was addicted or somebody's marriage was falling apart or, or somebody's children were estranged, he would always come in and, and know just the right way to love into that situation. It's what Henry Nouwen called a wounded healer. And it all centers around this last version of trauma, which I'll close with, and that's the trauma of what it's like or what it must be like to be God. You know, when Jesus came, he came as an atoning sacrifice. This coal here is a coal from the altar that says to Isaiah, your guilt is removed, your sin is atoned for. That's a prophetic statement of the one that Isaiah would later write about in Isaiah chapter 53, the one who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that would bring us peace with God would be laid upon him. Behold, Jesus has touched the most shameful parts about us and said your guilt is removed there. Your shame there is atoned for. It's covered. Remember, again, I have to repeat it. The most unclean things about us, 
are not the things that Jesus, that, that Jesus gets disgusted by. The most unclean things about us are like the disease with the doctor who knows exactly how to cure the disease. They're the things that he runs to with atoning love and grace. They're the things that stir his love and longing for us the most. He became the dishonored prophet. On the cross, his foundations were shaken as well. It says in the Gospels that there was an earthquake when Jesus was crucified. He calls down woes on himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that comes after his prayer in Gethsemane where he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, with woe, even to the point of death. Why did he go through all of this? So that we would never be forsaken. So that we would never have to have our foundation, which is Christ, shaken. He is a solid, firm foundation. Jesus, like Uzziah, was the prosperous king who died. But unlike Isaiah, whose death marked the end of Israel's prosperity and flourishing. Jesus' death, King Jesus' death, marks the beginning of his people's prosperity and flourishing. I love what Isaiah says in chapter 9, that of the increase of Jesus' government, who will reign on David's throne, there will be no end. There will be no end. Every day better than the day before. Every day you're feeling stronger and younger instead of weaker and older. That's what, that's, that's what lies ahead for the people of God. Whether in this life or in the life to come, the promise is that every day will be better than the day before because his government, his reign, his rule, which is a reign of peace and prosperity and flourishing, will increase forever and ever, and ever. We haven't seen anything yet. The best is still yet to come. Our sorrows will be swallowed up by joy, and even our joys will someday seem like sorrows in comparison to what the Lord has for us. As Isaiah would also say, no eye has seen no ear has heard what glorious things the Lord has in store for those who fear him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we struggle to believe these things. We leak faith. Faith leaks out of us every day, and we need to be refueled every day by these wonderful truths that you have loved us, that you have undone and eliminated our guilt and our shame, the things that we like least about ourselves. These are the areas where you remind us more than anything how much you love us. Father, teach us to believe the things that the Father in Luke 15 felt so urgent for his returning son to believe, that there is nothing in all creation that could ever separate him or us from your love that is in Christ Jesus. That you, Father, through Jesus Christ, cannot love us more than you do because you already love us completely. And you will not, because you choose not, to love us any less than that. For this we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.